Acts chapter 16. We're back in the book of Acts today after a two-week excursion from the book where we had Brent Corbin and Jonathan Dorst preach for us. Remember, Acts is a book that was written by Luke. It was written by Luke, who we learned last time we were in Acts, who was picked up whenever Paul and Silas went to Macedonia. He wrote a book for a nobleman named Theophilus to explain all that Jesus had begun to say and to do. And this morning... Just like you heard part of the story of what the Holy Spirit's doing in Charlie and Lauren's life, you're going to read a story of three case studies, three examples of conversion. So let's give your attention to God's Word. It's a long passage, so you can remain seated. But I'm going to read from us for Act, from Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 11. We'll go down through verse 40. This is the Word of the Lord, friends. It's given to you in love, and it's meant to change you. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Simothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come, women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune teller telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them in <clears throat> into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when, they, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out of this place and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word now and would you marinate our hearts in the grace of the knowledge of the glory of God? Help us like Lydia to pay attention and to give heed to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Who was your next-door neighbor growing up? Do you remember them? My next-door neighbor was um, a University of Texas quarterback in the 1970s. His name was Tommy. And Tommy had a son, and every year, about this time of year, Tommy would get an envelope in the mail full of the University of Texas tickets. And he would take his son, and he would drag his son down to Austin week after week to go to every University of Texas home game. And he would dress his son up in burnt orange and white, and he would teach his son the car ride down how to sing Texas Fight. And then they would get to the game together, and they would scream and yell and cheer for the University of Texas as they scored and as they hopefully beat their opponent. And the interesting thing about this relationship is that Tommy loved to go to these games, but his son hated it. But he would drag him to the game week after week, and he would dutifully go, and he would wear the burnt orange and the white, and he would sing Texas Fight, and he would cheer because he wanted his father's affection because if he didn't cheer, it was a long road home from Texas, from Austin back to my hometown. And then one day, something amazing happened. His son got an envelope in the mail that said very plainly on a burnt orange letterhead, congratulations, you have been accepted to the University of Texas. Now, for you and me, that might, might, not, you know, might not mean a whole lot, right? That may be a death sentence for some of us. But for him, it was an amazing, amazing experience. 
he had become a longhorn. He was pronounced accepted into this great club. And so pretty soon, he began to go to these games, these same games he grew up going to, wearing his burnt orange and white and singing Texas Fight. But it's interesting. Did he look any different? No, he wore the same clothes. Did he sound any different? No, he said the exact same thing. But instead of hating to go to these football games, he now loved it. And whenever they would cheer, whenever they would throw a touchdown, he would scream, not because he was trying to get his father's affection, because it would be a long ride home if he didn't, but because he was part of the University of Texas, and it was part of his team. He was part of the family. And it ceased to become a drudgery, and it became a pleasure for him to cheer. Something similar happens in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. The Bible describes that kind of change where you may not look altogether that different on the outside, but there's a change on the inside. And the Bible, all the way through Scripture, calls that something that is the secret to the book of Acts. It is the secret to having the kind of joy that the people in the first century had as the church came into being. And that secret was conversion. They were converted. And if religion, if you will, is from the outside in, conversion, as we're going to see in this text, was from the inside out. And the book of Acts is kind of like the last semester of, of welding school. It's like the last semester of medical school. It's like the last semester, really, of any kind of trade that you're, uh, you're, you'll ever learn, in that it becomes immensely practical. And all of a sudden, you close the book, and you start doing things. You actually start welding pieces of metal together. You actually, in mechanic school, start working on the car and trying to figure it out. You, in medical school, you actually start being a fellow. You start doing surgeries. You learn. And in the book of Acts, Luke wants Theophilus to see what conversion looks like. And so he gives us case studies of conversion. And in Acts chapter 16, you get three case studies. And as we're going to see, there are three case studies of very different people. You get a wealthy businesswoman. You get a no-name slave girl. And you get a blue-collar prison worker. And so we're going to look at each of those three conversion stories together, and perhaps you'll see your own story in theirs, or perhaps find conversion is for you too today. So let's look together. Luke gives us stories because, as Flannery O'Connor, the great American writer, says, that sometimes a story is a way to say something that can be said in no other way, and it actually takes every word of the story to communicate its meaning. That's true here. Paul once he could have surely shared hundreds of conversion stories, perhaps even in the city of Philippi. It was a leading city of Macedonia. Most scholars believe that this is actually Luke's hometown. And undoubtedly, he knew of hundreds of different conversion stories, but he picks these three. So let's compare and contrast them. Look at Lydia. Let's, let's profile her. Who is she? Well, first of all, we know that she's wealthy. She's a dealer of purple cloth, a seller of purple goods. She's a businesswoman from Thyatira, which means that she 
was probably a broker. Thyatira was a place where there was a huge garment industry. And she was probably the broker between the manufacturer and the ones who actually sold the goods. Everybody knew who she was. Lydia is actually the trade. It's the name of the ancient region where this takes place. And so her name, Lydia, may have been her business name. It may not have actually been her given name because it was in the ancient region of Lydia known for all of its garments and its dyes and its beautiful handiwork. If she, if she were in Tulsa, you know, Lydia may be the lady who lives several blocks from Utica Square, who shops at Mrs. Jackson's, who knows that Starbucks like the back of her hand, who has um, membership at Southern Hills. Like she, she is the wealthy businesswoman. She's the CEO. She's the mover and shaker. She's the one who is up and coming. She owns her own house. And um, not only is she a wealthy businesswoman, but it also says that she was very religious. Notice, lower your eyes to the text and see that it says that she was from the city of Thyatira, verse 14, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Do you see that? Which... When you see that term in Acts, it's almost a technical term for somebody who is not a Jew. She's a Gentile, but she wants to know about this Jewish king, this Jewish God. And so she practices as much as she's able with the information that's provided for her, the life of a Jew, even though she's not Jewish. She knows that there's one true God, and she worships him the best that she knows how, given the Old Testament that she has exposure to. So therefore, whenever Paul and Silas come to a region, where do they go when they first enter a city? Where do they go? They almost always go to the synagogue. And what's required for a synagogue to be in existence in a town? You had to have 10 Jewish men to have a quorum. And in this city, evidently, there's not 10 Jewish men. And so they go to the second best place they can find, and that's a place of prayer for the religious people. And at this place of prayer, who do they see? They see women, because there's not enough men to have a synagogue. And among these women is this lady named Lydia. And undoubtedly, this is how Paul, this is how Paul would have evangelized to Lydia. He would have used the Socratic method, which means he would have asked questions of her. And he would have said, Lydia, I see that you are very religious. You'll see this, of course, in the next chapter in Acts 17. And she would say, yes, I, I worship the one true God. To which Paul might reply, well, tell me what you've learned about this one true God. Well, I've learned that he is holy and he is sovereign and he is the one who made the world. Oh, really? Well, then, if he's holy and sovereign, how do you have a relationship with this God? Well, you must have a relationship through the blood of the Lamb. You must bring sacrifices and you must present blood before him because it's only through the shedding of blood that sins are forgiven. All the sacrifices that are given to us in the Old Testament, I've learned these things and I practice them the best of my ability. To which Paul then, seeing an opening, probably would have said, Lydia, I'm here to tell you the secret to Judaism. Do you want to know what that is? Do you want to know the key to all those sacrifices? Well, of course, Paul, please tell me. Every sacrifice... Every law, every command given to you in the Old Testament 
was fulfilled, Lydia, by one who has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. Every sacrifice, every law, every command points to Jesus Christ, who was for you not a sacrifice once, but a sacrifice once for all, who gave his life for you so that you might once and for all be forgiven of your sins, and that through Jesus, this Paschal Lamb, you might be in a right relationship with the Savior who you've learned so much about. Would you like to hear more about him? And somewhere along that conversation that Paul had with Lydia, undoubtedly, it says, the Holy Spirit opened her heart to pay attention In the NIV, it says to give heed, to to listen intently. Whenever Lydia begins to understand and hear that the Old Testament sacrifices are not about trying to get God to love me anymore, they're about what Jesus has done for me, the Holy Spirit opens her heart to believe, and it causes her through intellectual reasoning, through a rational discourse to get the gospel. And she believes Lydia is an example of someone who hears the reasonability of the gospel and comes to understand it. Many of you know my own testimony, and um, in my own life, there was a point at which at at some point, at some point, even though I grew up in the church and I was a good kid for the most part, Right, however you wanted to find good kid, right? Sin is sin. My goodness was evidence of my sin because of my own mixed motives. I need to repent of my good deeds and my bad. But at some point, at some point when I was growing up, the gospel ceased to become just something you do because that's what's expected of you. And at some point, that gospel becomes Beautiful. Like the example that I told when I opened the sermon about the boy who was going to the Texas games year after year after year. Now, he doesn't go because he's dragged. He goes because he's a part of the spirit of the University of Texas. And he even sends, having season tickets now as an adult, he sends his father those tickets so that he can meet him in Austin and go to these games. Lydia was a religious person who used her religion in order to get God to stay in her corner. In other words, religion was for her useful, but it wasn't yet beautiful. And at some point in Lydia's life, through a rational discourse and through an intellectual presentation of the gospel, the gospel ceased being just a useful and became beautiful to her. Has that ever happened to you? C.S. Lewis Um, says in his letters on the Psalms, he says that at some point when you see something so beautiful, you have to complete your praise of it by bringing somebody else along with you and praising it together. Like when you see a touchdown, like when you see OU just whip their opponents, or you see Oklahoma State just crush their opponents. I'm so sorry I just said that knowing that they just beat University of Tulsa. Yes, 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 forgive me. I know. Please hear the rest of the sermon. Don't get distracted. When you see a beautiful pass, even in a game where you get beat, I can't dig myself out now, you just want to grab your friends and go, that was awesome, and you give high fives. Like, this is best seen at NASCAR. Like, have you ever noticed, like, at NASCAR, like, I, I, 
Lord, bless NASCAR people. They're precious. I've just never been one. But I go over to people's houses who like NASCAR, and it's just like, it's like watching tennis. It's like going, you're just watching these cars go around the track. And it's, but whenever you see somebody win, right, whenever you see somebody take the win, they're like, man, that's awesome. And they're, they're, they're giving it to their fives, and the winners are spraying champagne everywhere, and they're celebrating. Why? Because praise is not complete until you share it, until you enjoy it. And that's the difference between religion and Christianity. I mean, religion is outside-in change. I mean, you may still wear the same clothes. You may just have burnt orange and white and sing Texas Fight. But something on the inside has changed. And you're motivated by a new power. And you may look and act very similarly because you're a very moral pagan, a non-Christian. Like Lydia, she was at the place of prayer. But she didn't understand the gospel because it hadn't yet become beautiful for her. Lydia is the example of the religious who become converted. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people in our town who are very religious people who have been using the church because it's the dominant social structure of our day. And they go week after week, and they do the songs, and they pray the prayers, and they sign the cards, and they, they play the part. But the gospel for them is useful. It's not beautiful. Is it to you? If the gospel is beautiful to you, it means that you have the love and affection of your Savior. When the gospel becomes beautiful to you, that's the moment in which you're converted. Let's look now at the no-name slave girl. If Lydia was the one who lived close to Utica Square, had a nice home, shopped at Mrs. Jackson, then here's a no-name slave girl. She lives in North Tulsa, and she bounces from house to house. It says, on the Sabbath, Paul and Silas were going to a place of prayer, and there they made a slave girl. Well, what's her profile? Well, she is not religious at all. In fact, she's quite the opposite, isn't she? She has a spirit of what? A spirit of divination. And what's interesting is even though she had this demon spirit in her, literally in Greek, it's a python spirit. It's, it's, in classical Greek mythology, a python guarded Apollo's temple. And Apollo would come and women would come to Apollo's temple and they would be called pythonesses because they would be wooed and swayed by this Apollo spirit. And so Luke is playing on that idea and saying she has a python spirit. She has a pagan spirit in her. And interestingly enough, it's this woman, right, not the religious it's this no-name slave girl who actually knows the most about Paul and Silas because she cries out day and night. They are servants of the Most High God. And so Paul sees her just hounding them. You're a servant of the Most High God. You're a servant of the Most High God. And Paul, I'm, I'm, so, great, I'm so grateful that Paul actually gets worn out by, by this woman because we get worn out by people sometimes. And he gets worn out by her, and he looks at her greatly annoyed, and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it says that the Spirit came out of her this very hour. And it's assumed because of where Luke positions this 
no-name slave girl between the conversion of Lydia and, as we're going to see in just a minute, the conversion of the jailer, that she, too, becomes a member of this Philippian church. But notice how she's converted. Is she converted through a rational discourse? Is she converted through Paul just saying to her, listen, all the Old Testament sacrifices point to Jesus? No, she's converted through a power encounter. She's converted through having her physical needs met very powerfully. And why this demon would want to associate with Paul, we do not know. Perhaps it was to discredit the gospel by associating this new Johnny-come-lately faith with with the occult. But the spirit is um, exercised out of her by by Paul. And we read this passage and we say, okay, this is a no-name slave girl. In our day, she may not be in Utica Square. She may be in North Tulsa, bouncing from house to house. But you know what? We really don't have slavery these days. So how to read to relate to this? Interesting. We don't have slavery today. Do you know that in April, Fox 23 had a story about a girl in North Tulsa who was enslaved? Do you know that Fox 23 reported about a young girl who was 12 years old who would become an object for men in North Tulsa? Enslaved? She had run away from her house. She'd been given a home. She'd been invited into a car by a gentleman. She'd been given some drugs to numb the pain. And she could keep the first $100. And she had to give all the rest to these people who enslaved her. That didn't happen in Erie and Jaya. That didn't happen in southern India. That happened about four miles from where you and I are sitting right now. And we see these girls, or even some of these young boys or people that are human trafficked. You know that it is a $32 billion industry, human trafficking worldwide. 20 million people in the United States are enslaved right now through a very, very sophisticated economic system. 1.2 million of those are children enslaved right now. And we would just tell this girl, you know what you need? You just need to read your Bible and come to church. You need to just join our Bible club and please just come and, and, and we want you to hear the gospel about Jesus' love for you. Listen, listen to me, please. We cannot be so naive. This young girl, do you know how she got caught in this um, horrible world? She was told that she had to um, commit her life to this, or if she didn't, they would, um, they would beat her brother. And she didn't believe them, and they did. And then she was told, if you don't um, do what we say, we're going to um, beat your mother. And she didn't believe them, and they did. And we just look at her and say, you just, you just need to read the Bible and come to church. For women like that, 
Will a rational explanation of the gospel be what she needs? No. She needs an encounter of power. She needs physical healing. She needs sophisticated, systemic help at the deepest level. And friends, notice that Jesus always meets us at the point of our greatest need. And he comes to us in different ways, doesn't he? Remember the story when Lazarus died and he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. They were both broken by the death of their brother. They were in pain. And do you remember how Jesus comes to Mary and comes to Martha. Remember, Martha, being the type A that she is, runs out and she, he said, Jesus, if you had been here, this would not have happened. And he says to Martha, Martha, do you know the resurrection and the life? And she says, yes, I know the doctrine. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he confronts her with the truth in love. He meets her in the head. And then Mary comes out, and she comes the same way, doesn't she? She says, Lord, if you hadn't been here, he would not have died. And what does Jesus do? Same situation, two sisters. Jesus doesn't confront her with his truth. He comforts her with his presence. And he says, nothing. And in John 11, it says, the shortest passage of Scripture, that Jesus wept. Listen, do you weep? for the no-name slave girls that live in our area. Lydia was met through intellectual reasoning. The slave girl was met through the freedom from oppression. And she became a sister in the Philippian church. Now third, the jailer. If Lydia lives in Utica Park... If this girl lives in North Tulsa, bouncing from house to house, then the jailer has a 3-2 in one of the suburbs, and he works for the city. He's a blue-collar guy who governs over the jail. Uh, the slave owners get upset that, they've that Paul and Silas have ruined their potential for financial gain. And they drag them in and they justify, really it was the fact that they were afraid of losing money. That was the real issue. But they trumped up these great socially acceptable charges and said they're destroying our way of life. They get the crowd to jump in with them. And they're in prison. They're taken to the prison. And here the jailer is. He puts their feet in the stocks, which you and I do not want to have happen. They stretch your legs apart and force you into these wooden barricades that are excruciatingly painful. And they do it on purpose to remind you that you are a prisoner and that it should not make you feel motivated to go and disobey the state again. And it, this jailer is doing his job. That's his job. And there's no context here to say that he was religiously motivated one way, shape, or form. He would be the secularist, if you will. He would be the guy who's just indifferent to religion. He's just doing his job. He's just delivering the mail. He's just watching over the prisoners. He's just doing his thing. But notice how the gospel comes to him. It didn't come through rational discourse. It didn't come to him through an encounter by being freed from oppression. It came to this man by mere example, by moral example. Because notice what Luke brings out. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Who sings hymns to God when your feet are in the stocks? 
boys and girls, listen to me. Like when you, when you have something taken from you, like you have a toy taken from you or you don't feel good because you've got a stomach ache, do you sing praises to Jesus? If you're like me, probably not. You just don't feel good. But here are Paul and Silas who didn't feel very good, and they are singing. They're singing to God, praising him and praying. And then God causes an earthquake. Wouldn't that be cool? Kids, an earthquake happens. And the doors of all the prison, of all the jails open up. And notice what Paul and Silas do here. They've been put in the stocks by this man who they probably don't think a whole lot for, a puppet of the Roman state. And here they have the opportunity to escape. And what do they do? They do not escape. Why? Because they are leading by moral example. And it is their moral example that opens this jailer's heart to believe the gospel. In, in Roman times, um, Students, listen, in Roman times, what would happen is if you were given responsibility over someone, if you were to run the jail, and they escaped on your watch when you're watching them, do you know what would happen to you? That's right. You would be killed. And so here, this jailer sees all these jail cells opened, and assuming assuming that there were prisoners that had escaped, he draws his sword to run himself through because he wants to put himself out of the misery of public humiliation of being executed publicly. And just before he's going to kill himself, Paul says, wait, we're all here. And rather, not through a rational discourse, not through an encounter of freedom from oppression, but through the moral example, Paul says to this man, we have not gone anywhere. Do not take your life. We have saved ourselves so that you might be saved. And we can do this. Do you know why? Because there is one who has already died for us so that we could be set free. You don't need to take your life. You need to join us because there is one who has already run himself through in love for us so that we could be set free, not from the prison walls of the Roman state, but from the prison walls of our own sin. And it's their example. It is overcoming evil with good and perseverance through suffering that this Roman jailer becomes a believer. Do you see that in the text? Do you hear that in Luke's story? He is comparing and contrasting these three people to show you, just like we heard in Charlie and Lauren's testimony of how God is at work in their life. He's showing you what does it look like when you have an inside-out change and that you're really converted. So in conclusion, what do we learn from this? I think we learn a couple of things. The first thing you learn is that the gospel is for everybody. It doesn't matter if you live near Utica Square. It doesn't matter what size home you have or what your job is. The gospel is for you, rich or poor. It is for you. And whether God opens your heart through a rational, intellectual exercise of wrestling with the Bible and wrestling with world religions and seeing the exclusive claim that only through Jesus can you be a Christian, whether he does it that way or he does it because he delivered you through mercy needs and the power of oppressive forces or because he shows you by the example of someone who just blew your mind in the way that they overcame evil with good that the Lord opened your heart to believe the gospel, and it makes sense. It ceases to become useful, and it starts to become beautiful.
So the gospel is for everyone. The wealthy, the middle class, the blue collar, the gospel is for everyone. That also means, by the way, that the gospel is for the religious, doesn't it? And sometimes it's the religious who are the hardest nuts to crack. They're the coconuts, not the peaches. They're the ones with the hard outer shell, the milky middle. They're the ones that are hard to crack open because they're so sure that God loves them because they go to church. That's something, but that's not Christianity. And the gospel is also for the irreligious, those who think that they have done something so bad that God can never love them. That is something, but that is not the good news. The good news is that the gospel is for the religious and the irreligious. And he wants to bring us together in a family called the church. Which takes us to the second thing, and with this I'll close. The gospel unites us into one family. These people are nationally different. Lydia was from Thyatira. The oppressed girl, she could have been from anywhere. We really don't know. She was probably a citizen of Philippi. The jailer was Roman. They were all brought up under the Roman Empire. That is true. But they have a unity that has deepened their um, bonds even still. They're racially different. Lydia would be Middle Eastern. The, uh, we don't know what the uh, um, no-named slave girl would look like, but she'd probably look Mediterranean. And the jailer would be European, brought together into one family. There's different levels of religious interest, brought together in one family. They're socially very, very different. They live in completely different worlds. But what happens? Both Lydia and the jailer open up their home and they share their lives with each other. John Stott says, when you have your heart opened, your front door soon becomes open too. And they're sharing life together, doing it together. Wouldn't it be great, Trinity? Wouldn't it be great if you could be at a church where we could be so different from each other, but that the bond of the gospel brought us together. Because each of the worlds you live in Monday through Saturday is very different from the person sitting next to you, probably. We're all different. And yet we're all made unique and special in light of what Jesus has done for us. And so he brings us together, even as monolithic, even as, this, even as we look so similar, we dress so similar. But even, even we're very different from each other. Wouldn't it be great if that just multiplied by a thousandfold? And we had people of different races and different side of the tracks coming to call this place home because the only requirement to be part of the church, the only requirement is that there is no requirement and that you come broken and you come open to be changed by your Savior who loves you. And underneath all of this, Luke has a great sense of irony because as he travels with the Apostle Paul, he would know that Paul is a good Jew, used to pray a prayer you can look it up. It's on the internet. You'll find it. Pray a prayer that Jews used to pray every morning when they woke up. And you know what that prayer was? Lord, thank you that I am not, what? Not a woman. Not a slave. Not a Gentile. And Luke knew that Paul had prayed that prayer for years before he had that Damascus Road experience. And yet, who is it that Luke brings to the surface in this text to show that these three people, a woman, 
a slave and a Gentile, have become family with Paul. Isn't that beautiful? So lay your prejudices down, friends. See that your Savior loves you and come to him in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who know how to be the transforming presence of Jesus in the world because of the love with which you first loved us. Father, I pray for those in this room who aren't yet Christians that you'll open their hearts to believe, whether through intellectual convincing or through an experience of deliverance or through the moral example. I pray, Father, that you will open our hearts to see that you are both beautiful and believable. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the means of grace for Christ's church are through the sacraments, which are visible signs and seals of his sanctifying power in our hearts. Jesus is in these elements, not physically, but spiritually he's here. 
And he wants to remind you as you come in faith, having examined your heart, as you taste this bread and you taste this wine and this grape juice, that he loves you and he cares for you more than you know. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples. And at that meal, he took bread before them and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. In the same manner after